0: Good evening, as we continue our uh, consideration of various psalms from the book of Psalms, we're going to consider tonight Psalm 77. Psalm 77, let us hear God's holy word. It is entitled, for the choir director, According to Jeduthun, a psalm of Asaph. My voice rises to God, and I will cry aloud. My voice rises to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. In the night, my hand was stretched out without weariness. My soul refused to be comforted. When I remember God, then I am disturbed. When I sigh, then my spirit grows faint. Selah. You have held my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I have considered the days of old, the years of long ago. I will remember my song in the night. I will meditate with my heart, and my spirit ponders. Will the Lord reject forever? And will he never be favorable again? Has his loving kindness ceased forever? Has his promise come to an end forever? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Or has he in anger withdrawn his compassion? Selah. Then I said, it is my grief that the right hand of the Most High has changed. I shall remember the deeds of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. I will meditate on all your work and use on your deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your strength among the peoples. You have by your power redeemed your people, the sons of Jacob and Joseph, Selah. The waters saw you, O God. The waters saw you. They were in anguish. The deeps also trembled, the clouds poured out water, the skies gave forth a sound, your arrows flashed here and there, the sound of your thunder was in the whirlwinds. the lightnings lit up the world, the earth trembled and shook, your way was in the sea, and your paths in the mighty waters, and your footprints may not be known, you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron." Dear friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let's ask the Lord to bless the proclamation of his word this evening. Our gracious Lord God and Father in heaven, how thankful we are for your word. And we are especially thankful uh, for the Psalms as they express the full range of human emotion. We thank you that your spirit has inspired these psalm writers to pen these wonderful poems of faith and trust. Lord, we ask that you would grant us grace to understand this portion of your God-breathed, inerrant, infallible Word. We pray that your Spirit would open our minds and our hearts to be receptive to that which the Spirit is uh, teaching us in this portion of your God-breathed Scriptures. Be with us now. Bless us and grant me, your unworthy servant, the grace to declare your Word with clarity and power for your glory and for the edification of your people. In Jesus' name we pray. God's people said. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. The title of my sermon this evening is Despondency, Remembrance, and Hope. And uh, there's a number of key words you can be listening for in my sermon this evening. Distress, faith, doubt, remember, and hope. Well, my dear brothers and sisters in Christ, I want to ask you a question. Don't answer out loud, of course, but, but be honest in your heart. Have you ever experienced in your walk with the Lord a crisis of faith? A crisis of faith that left you perhaps questioning God's goodness, or perhaps questioning the reality of His love for you, or perhaps a crisis of faith that left you with serious doubts about the very existence of God Himself, or perhaps doubts about the truthfulness and trustworthiness Of the Bible as God's Word. You know, many circumstances and factors can potentially lead to such a crisis of faith. And many of God's people throughout the history of the church and and even throughout biblical history have faced crises of faith from time to time. For example, if you've experienced such a crisis of faith, perhaps this crisis of faith was brought on by a deluge of sudden and unexpected suffering flooding into your life. Suffering such as the tragic sudden and unexpected loss of a close loved one. Or the onset of a debilitating physical health challenge or disease. Or a devastating financial loss that puts you at risk of potentially losing everything that you've worked for your whole life. Or perhaps emotional and mental health issues that sank you into a pit of despondency and left you in a state where you felt that you could barely function. In your day to day life. And of course, the list could go on in terms of trials and tribulations, problems and struggles of living in this fallen sin cursed world. There are many such circumstances that could lead us to have a crisis of faith. Well, dear ones, if you've ever faced a crisis of faith in your life, in your walk with the Lord, or if even now you are perhaps living through and experiencing such a crisis of faith, Passages like this from God's word remind you that you are not alone. In fact, the word of God records for us numerous occasions in redemptive history when God's people, both as individuals and sometimes collectively as a covenant community, faced crises and conflicts that led them to question God's covenant faithfulness and to question the certainty of his promises And there are numerous passages of scripture where even the most faithful and the most godly among God's people are recorded as questioning God and wrestling with how to reconcile the goodness of God and the certainty of his covenant promises with the historical realities of suffering and sometimes oppression that they were facing in their daily experience. Our passage for this Lord's Day evening is one such passage where the psalmist is experiencing just such a crisis of faith, crying out to God with intense emotion, and questioning God's apparent inaction in the face of the sufferings of his people, either the psalmist's personal suffering, or perhaps Israel's national suffering, or perhaps a combination of both. Now, Psalm 77 begins, in one sense, with a note of despondency. Perhaps reflecting a time in Israel's history where it seems like the Lord has rejected and forgotten his people. But it ends on a note of renewed hope in the Lord. The psalm title ascribes this psalm to Asaph. Asaph was uh, one of the temple musicians in the days of David, and, and uh, so, and the scholars tell us that this could either mean that Asaph himself uh, penned this psalm, or that one of his descendants, one of the Asaphite descendants, uh, perhaps penned this psalm. Whatever the case, we know that ultimately it is, uh, is it is from the Holy Spirit, for all scripture is breathed out by God, and, and holy men of God penned the scriptures that they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What is it that brings this Asaphite psalmist out of the dark pit of his despondency and crisis of faith back into a place of renewed faith and hope? Well, the basic answer to that question is the act of remembering the mighty deeds and wonders and works of Yahweh in the past, especially remembering his great acts of redeeming his people out of slavery in Egypt and bringing them through the Red Sea, as well as his act of shepherding his people like a flock through the ministry of Moses and Aaron. And by the way, remember that for God's people who lived under the old covenant, the exodus event for them was the paradigm of God's gracious intervention to redeem and save his people. When they considered God's saving mercies, they would look back to the exodus event as the evidence that God had redeemed them and taken them to be his people and that God had saved them and brought them to himself, just as the death and resurrection of Christ serve as the great and consummate act of God for us today as believers living under the new covenant. When we remember uh, the foundation of our faith, we look back uh, to the death and resurrection of Christ, our Savior. God's people before the coming of Christ looked back to the Exodus events. Now, the scholars like to debate uh, various issues, and the scholars debate whether this psalm should be classified as an individual lament, which means that the psalmist here is simply speaking for himself, bringing his own lamentation and his own personal crisis of faith to the Lord, or whether this should be more properly classified as a communal lament, where the psalmist, though using individual terms, speaks on behalf of the nation of Israel. Now, good and sound and uh, convincing arguments can be made for either viewpoint, and I'm going to leave it to the scholars to duke it out on that one, because, quite frankly, it seems to me that this psalm, like many of the psalms, is general enough that it can be used either individually or communally. This is a psalm that you can take upon your lips as an individual believer when you face a personal crisis of faith. But this is also a psalm that we as the church, that we as God's people, uh, when we face a crisis of faith or when we, we face troubles or tribulations, perhaps persecution, this would be a wonderful psalm for us to sing and pray together as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So with all of this background information in mind, let's dive into our psalm and into its contents. And we see here, as we look at the opening section of this psalm, verses 1 through 6, what we find here, first of all, is faith tested by the apparent inaction of God. Faith tested by the apparent, not the real, but the apparent inaction of God. Sometimes, doesn't it seem sometimes like God has just taken a nap? Or maybe he's on a leave of absence. Or maybe he's checked out. Sometimes it can seem that God is detached, uninvolved in his world. We see this, first of all, brought forth in the first two verses. The psalmist says, My voice rises to God, and I will cry aloud. My voice rises to God, and he will hear me. In the day of trouble I sought the Lord. In the night my hand was stretched out without weariness. Now, even in the midst of his crisis of faith and his despondency, the psalmist is looking to the Lord, and he does express some confidence in the Lord, but that confidence is uh, tainted by and and, uh, shrouded by this crisis that he is facing. And so the psalmist cries out to God with intense emotion. The language here uh, conveys deep and intense emotion. Here the psalmist is engaged with God. He is crying out to God. In fact, the repetition in verse 1, my voice rises to God, my voice rises to God, contributes to this sense of urgency and intensity by way of emphasis. In fact, uh, verse 1 could literally be translated, I'm told, as my voice to God, I cry for help. My voice to God. The cry for help is sandwiched between two references to the psalmist's voice and uh, the language of trouble or distress used by the psalmist in verse two, along with the imagery of stretching out his hands to God without weariness, which indicates persistent prayer, not just offering up a, a brief, short prayer, but But persistently seeking God in prayer, lifting up his hands, which was a common posture in prayer. It's not that the psalmist is here a Pentecostal. He's just crying out to God persistently in prayer. This, all of this, the language, the imagery here serves to underscore the desperation and the emotional intensity of the psalmist's plea. What does this teach you and me about our prayer lives? God is interested, and He welcomes us to bring the whole range of our emotions to him when we are feeling depressed when we 're feeling down we don 't have to put on a we don 't have to put on a bold face before God we don 't have to pretend like everything 's okay sometimes when we 're talking to other people and we 're feeling down inside sometimes we put on a, a happy face, but inside we 're dying you don 't have to do that with your heavenly Father He welcomes you to bring your distress, your troubles, to him. And then verse 3, we read this. The psalmist says, When I remember God, then I am disturbed. Now, that's strange. When he remembers God, he's disturbed, he's troubled. He says, When I sigh, then my spirit grows faint. Why would remembering God distress him, disturb him? Initially, the psalmist's remembrance of God does not comfort him, as we will see later on in this psalm. Ultimately, it is remembering the mighty works of God, especially his mighty act of redemption in the Exodus event, that brings this uh, psalmist out of his uh, out of his funk, his spiritual funk and crisis of faith. But initially, remembering God disturbs him, troubles him. Why? Well, perhaps because the psalmist is wondering... Why has the God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who has been faithful in the past to act in response to the cries and prayers of his people. Why has this God, Yahweh, the true and living God, my covenant God, why is he not hearing me? He's acted in the past. Why has he stopped acting? He's intervened to rescue and deliver in the past. Why is he not responding to my present pleas? And then verse 4. The psalmist uses very picturesque language. He says, you have held my eyelids open. What a picture. God holding your eyelids open. What is this an image of? This is an image of insomnia. Restlessness. He can't sleep. And he says... God, you're holding my eyelids open. In other words, I'm so troubled, I'm so distressed that I can't sleep. you ever been so uh, troubled, distressed, that even though your body is exhausted, you just can't get to sleep because your brain won't turn off. And then verse 5 and 6. I have considered the days of old, the years of long ago. I will remember my song in the night. I will meditate with my heart And my spirit ponders. He's musing. He's pondering. He's wondering. He is wrestling with God. He's trying to figure out the ways of God. And and how the God revealed in the scriptures, the God who has done mighty acts for his people in the past. How is it that this God now seems to be inattentive? Dr. Van Gameren says this about verses 5 and 6. He says, in his remembrance, in the psalmist's remembrance... The psalmist recalls the acts of God celebrated in the quote, Songs in the Night, verse 6. The present distress seems contradictory to the history of God's involvement and love for his people. What the psalmist is wrestling with here is the mystery of God's providence, the mystery of our holy, righteous, just, and gracious God's dealings with mankind. And it is a mystery. Sometimes we don't know what God's up to. Sometimes it just doesn't seem clear. We can't read God's providence successfully. We have only a limited, finite view. God sees the big picture. We don't. And so here, the mystery of God's providence is confronting the psalmists. And the mystery of God's providence can sometimes prove to be a challenge to our faith. It can sometimes create a crisis of faith. For example... Uh, one of the mysteries of God's providence that, that I wrestled with at the time, and I'm not going to get political with this, but I'm sure you'll remember when we withdrew from Afghanistan. Uh, and you remember what happened? The Taliban took over. Many of our brothers and sisters in Christ who live in Afghanistan are now trapped there, having to live under the regime of this violent Evil Islamist regime, the Taliban. Our brothers and sisters living in Afghanistan, living under the Taliban, face great danger, face violence, persecution, torture, and death. And I remember at the time wondering, Lord, why would you allow this to happen to our dear brothers and sisters in Afghanistan? No doubt being a minority faith there in that land, no doubt. They already suffered uh, difficulty. Why would God bring in more difficulty and suffering by allowing the Taliban uh, to rule in that land? And so that was a, a struggle with me. And I was like, Lord, why? Why would you do that? And the answer to that question is, I don't know. I don't know. I know God is good. And I know our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan face great suffering and violence for their faith, for their confession of Christ. Friends, as we consider, and and I'm sure there are examples that you can think of as well, but as we consider the entirety of the Bible's witness to the ways of God with man, we understand as we study the scriptures that often God is at work behind the scenes, if you will. He's always at work behind the scenes, actually, even when he seems to be inactive from our human point of view. Sometimes it seems to us like God's taking a nap, that he's not hearing us, but he's actually much more at work than we could even begin to realize. Think, for example, I'm sure many of you are familiar, I'm sure you're pretty much all familiar with the story of Joseph, right? Remember, think about Joseph as a young man, favored by his father, hated by his brothers, cruelly sold into slavery by his brothers in an act of just, just hard-hearted evil and cruelty. Do you imagine, put yourself in Joseph's shoes, or sandals, as it were, as your brothers betray you. They strip you of that coat of many colors that your father had made for you. They throw you into a pit, and then they sell you into slavery, and you are taken away, and Joseph may have been... 17, he was a young man at the time. You're taken away from everything that you've known. You're stripped away from your family. You're put in chains. You're taken to a foreign land. You're sold to Potiphar. And then you're falsely accused by Potiphar's wife of, of making moves on her, and you end up in prison. But God, in his timing, raises you up, and in God's timing, you eventually become second to Pharaoh alone. But I imagine that Joseph, while he was being dragged to Egypt to be sold as a slave, I'm sure that Joseph felt abandoned by God. I the scriptures don't tell us what Joseph said to God or how he prayed to God during that time, but one can imagine Joseph crying out, Lord, where are you? Help me. Why? And the answer seems to be silence. He feels abandoned. By, not only by his brothers, his family, but by God himself. But you know the end of the story. In God's gracious providence, eventually there is a reconciliation. David, uh, it's not David, Joseph is reconciled to his brothers. And as, as their father is nearing his death, uh, Joseph's brothers are worried like, okay, when our father dies, uh, Joseph's going to take out his revenge on us. So they... Uh, you know, they try to say, well, our father said you've got to forgive us. You know, paraphrasing. And what does Joseph say to them? He says to his brothers, his brothers who had treated him with such cruelty and hatred, he says to them, you meant it for evil. Yes, you did evil. But God meant it for good. Joseph saw the end at the, at the towards the end there. Joseph saw what was going on, but only in hindsight. Beloved, God is at work in his mysterious providence. And we don't always understand why God allows the suffering that he does even among his people. But psalms like this remind us that God understands when we feel distressed and confused in the face of evil and suffering. And he invites us to bring our questions and our cries to him in prayer. And that brings us to our next section of this psalm. Verses seven through ten, where we find the Lord questioned. That's the second main point in your outline. The Lord questioned. Look at verses seven through ten. These are uh, poignant questions, piercing questions. The psalmist says, "Will the Lord reject forever? And will He never be favorable again?" Has His loving? These are the things that He's wrestling with. These are the questions that keep him up at night. Has his loving kindness ceased forever? Has his promise come to an end forever? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Or has he in anger withdrawn his compassion, Selah? Then I said, it is my grief that the right hand of the Most High has changed. And by the way, verse 10 uh, is a very difficult uh, passage to translate and interpret in the Hebrew which helps to explain the differences in the various English translations. I'm reading here from the New American Standard Version, where the psalmist seems to suggest that he became convinced that, that uh, the Most High has changed his ways, that in fact God has forgotten to be gracious and rejected his people. And uh, it's translated differently in, in other English translations. But I think the study note on this verse that is found in the New Geneva Study Bible today, the Reformation Study Bible, is probably on target when it explains that, quote, verse 10, it says, this verse provides a crucial transition in the psalm. By remembering God's great acts in the past, the poet builds confidence in the present and for the future. So, in case you're wondering about verse 10, but let's let's, uh, take a view of these verses as a whole. Here, uh, the psalmist, in the words of one commentator, here in verses 7 through 10, the psalmist, quote, encourages himself to think that the favor, love, promises, and grace of God are changeless. He expresses this in six questions, each expecting the answer no. In other words, when the psalmist is asking these questions, he expects a negative answer. I like what Van Gameren says about this. He says, the formulation of questions has a therapeutic effect. In other words, it's not wrong to ask questions of God, to wonder, to wrestle with these things. Van Gemmeren says, doubts and questions are expressed by the greatest men of God in the Old Testament, and even by our Lord Jesus on the cross, quoting Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's a quote from Matthew twenty-seven, forty-six. And 46. Van Gemmeren says, in asking these questions and in expressing his doubts, the heart of the psalmist comes to rest, for he knows that the God of Abraham cannot deny himself and cut himself off from his own people. In questions there lies hope. What do we learn from this? What are, how, are we to, uh, how are we to take these truths and apply them to our lives? Well, friends, God's word certainly forbids us From taking the Lord's name in vain, certainly forbids us from such things as blasphemy and raging arrogantly against the Lord. But at the same time, the Bible does not prohibit us from crying out reverently to God in our confusion and distress, or even from questioning God. God is not intimidated by our questions. He's not intimidated by our honest doubts. In fact, he welcomes them. Some of the most prominent figures in the Bible, as we've seen, prominent figures who were eminent for their faith, were believers who wrestled mightily with God, and even struggled intensely at times with doubt. Our gracious Heavenly Father, like I said, is not intimidated by our doubts or our questions. In fact, He invites us to bring our questions, our doubts, our struggles, and our distresses to Him. Dear listener, are you turning to your Lord, in your distress when you face a crisis of faith do you bring that crisis to the lord or do you try to pretend that everything's okay god sees through your facade you don't have to put up a put on a show for god he knows your heart he knows you better than you know yourself so cast your cares upon the lord bring your questions before the lord don't rage against the lord don't take his name in vain but be honest with the Lord. You know, any any, uh, good friendship or good marriage requires openness, transparency, honesty. The Lord, our Heavenly Father, desires our full honesty as we come before Him. Are you bringing your doubts and questions before the Lord in prayer, and are you seeking answers to your questions in His Word? But that leads me to the final section of this psalm uh, and my final point. We notice here in verses eleven through twenty the mighty deeds of Yahweh remembered and hope rekindled. Look at verses eleven and twelve. The psalmist writes, I shall remember the deeds of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. Here he is uh he is determined to remember the mighty deeds of the Lord, the deeds from of old. He says in verse twelve, I will meditate on all your work and muse. On your deeds. Notice the, the, the variety of language that he uses. He says, I will do what? I will remember. I will meditate. I will muse. And what's he going to remember, meditate, and muse on? God's deeds, God's wonders, his work, his mighty deeds. The psalmist's piling up of words here seems to imply that he is reflecting upon the works of God in all of their multifaceted variety. Such as, as Ben Gameron puts it, his mighty works in creation, redemption, judgment, and salvation. And then it goes on to say, in verse 13, the psalmist confesses, your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God. Here we see his faith being rekindled as he recognizes the holiness of God and the greatness of God. Especially in contrast to the false gods and idols of the Gentile nations. And then verses 14 and 15, you are the God who works wonders. You have made known your strength among the peoples. You have by your power redeemed your people. And the people of God are described as the sons of Jacob and Joseph. Here the psalmist in these verses confesses the holiness, greatness, and power of God as displayed in his redemption of his people. His people being described here, as I said, as the sons of Jacob and Joseph. In other words, not just the northern kingdom, not just the southern kingdom, not just certain tribes among his people, but all of his people collectively considered, all of God's people in their entirety. And then we transition into verses 16 through 20. Now, verses 16 through 19 are are quite possibly uh, uh, the psalmist uh, taking Another poem that reflected upon the the Red Sea crossing and incorporating that poem into his own psalm. It says, verse 16, the waters saw you, O God. There's personification going on here. The psalmist is personifying the waters of the Red Sea. The waters saw you, O God. The waters saw you. They were in anguish the deep the deeps also trembled the clouds poured out water the skies gave forth a sound your arrows flashed here and there probably referring poetically to the lightning the sound of your thunder was in the whirlwind the lightning's lit up the world the earth trembled and shook your way was in the sea your path in the mighty waters and your footprints Might not be known. God, parted the Red Sea, he walked, as it were, through the Red Sea, leading his people Israel, but you could not see the footsteps, the footprints of the Lord. Again, as uh, one commentator puts it, what we have here in these verses is a poetically heightened description of the majesty of God displayed when he opened the way through the Red Sea. And it's interesting, the language that he uses here about the storm and the lightning and so forth... The ancient Canaanites, uh, the peoples that, the Gentile peoples that surrounded Israel, worshipped Baal, and Baal was viewed as the storm god, the god of the lightning and the thunder and the rain and all of that. And so Van Gemeren points out that the Lord's appearance is cast in the language of Canaan, where Baal was the storm god. His power was thought to be displayed in the clouds, rain, thunder, and lightning. For Israel, Baal's alleged power was dwarfed by the awesome powers of the God of Israel. And so, it's interesting in this language, what might be going on here is the psalmist might be using this language uh, to kind of uh, attack Baal. We might have a subtle anti-Baal polemic going on here. In other words, the psalmist might be subtly trolling Baal worshippers, making fun of their deity and saying no. Our God, Yahweh, the true and living God, he is the true God over the storm and the sea. And then, verse 20, you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. The imagery in verses 16 through 19 is violent imagery as God parts the Red Sea and and we have the power of God, the majesty of God displayed in the storm. But then, verse 20 ends the psalm with tranquility. As we get a picture of Israel, God's people, being led like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. God delivered his people through mighty acts of judgment and redemption that he might lead his people beside the still waters. And so we see through this poetic language that faith is rekindled and hope is restored. As I mentioned before, as we close our time in the word this evening, in Old Testament times, the people looked back to the Exodus event and its aftermath as the ultimate display of God's grace, power and faithfulness in redeeming his people. The Exodus was the primary redemptive event in Old Testament times. It's what what it's what identified God's people. We are the people whom God has rescued from slavery in Egypt. We are the redeemed chosen people of God. But, of course, God's power to redeem and his covenant faithfulness to fulfill his promises of salvation are even more powerfully, even more constantly displayed in the incarnation, the miracles, and especially the death and resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So when troubles distress your soul, when doubts assault you, remember Jesus Christ. Remember and reflect upon the Lord Jesus Christ and his mighty work of dying on the cross for your sins and rising from the dead for your justification. And as you reflect upon Christ, the the, the Christ who loved you unto death, the Christ who was crucified for the forgiveness of your sins, dear brothers and sisters, the Christ who rose from the dead, that you might be with him forever. That. Christ has not abandoned you. Remember what he has done for you. Remember that he has promised to abide with you. uh, As Jesus promised in the Great Commission, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Trust in him. Look to him. Remember him. And as you do, may your hope uh, be rekindled. May your faith be strengthened. And may your crisis of faith, whatever it might be, be resolved. Amen. Let us pray. Our Lord and Father in heaven, we do thank you and praise you that you love us, that you abide with us, that you understand, O oh Lord, when we struggle with faith. For, Lord, we live in a fallen, sin cursed world. But we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have told us to fear not, for you have overcome the world. In this world we will have trouble. May we not fear, for you have overcome the world. And you will pull us through, Lord God. You will pull us through to the end. You will preserve us in your grace. May we live in the light of that truth. May we be strengthened with confidence in you as we face the struggles of living in this fallen world as we wrestle with the mysteries of your providence. Mm. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Amen.